Before we begin, there's a bonus interview at the end of this podcast. Hello, I'm Toby Haydock, your MC, Very Squared. I wrote to this next gentleman with very little hope of a reply. It was in one episode of Doctor Who. Not only that, it was one episode of a seven-part story. One episode of a seven-part story in a career that has lasted over 50 years. Uh, He's encountered James Bond, uh, an American werewolf in London, and number six, but in Doctor Who terms, it's number three that we'll be talking about. And even if I say his name is Gordon Stern, uh, that might not mean a lot to you all, but I need to say it because um, we don't mention it in our intro. Uh, So anyway, podcast is ready. Right, cut it open. Um, We have just watched... My next uh, victim's appearance on Doctor Who. It was just <laughs> just one episode, but uh, nonetheless a nice part. Uh, and you quite enjoyed watching that, so I'm going to ask you to um, let the listeners know who you are and why I'm talking to you about Doctor Who. Well, I don't know why you're talking to Doctor Who. <laughs> I'm dead, aren't I? I got shot in the episode. You did. You were Professor oh, Heldorf. I in, was, wasn't I? In The Ambassadors of Death. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. God, it's a long time ago. Uh, but uh, how was it looking looking back at it? Terrific. I really thought it was good. I was quite. I was pleased with my performance. Anyway, it was it was just one episode. But you you have memories of um, of working uh, with uh, John Pertwee and Nicholas Courtney and the team at the time. No, funnily enough, no. The only one, the only thing that I remember is the fact that I got shot and the guy put the gun right into my gut, and then. Which was very, was very amusing. He didn't quite burn me, but uh, and he said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Gordon. I didn't want to do it." I said, "All right, do it over there." So when you see it in the thing, you see the gun separately from the from the uh, from the person being shot. Uh, that's the only thing I remember. I I must say I was pretty busy, and uh, you tried. I'm. I never thought this was going to be a great thing. You so you went from one an episode in in uh, Doctor Who to something else, and you know, I didn't consider it to be the pinnacle of my career. Sure, but it was great fun doing it, and I uh, I like people being professional, and everybody was. You know, Pertwee was great. I thought it was a great Doctor Who, and so was Nicholas. Um, so I was as, a, as the uh, colonel. No, it was fun. No, I enjoyed doing it. And do you remember Michael Ferguson? Did you work with him? Oh, with lovely. Mike, I'm glad you mentioned him because he was lovely. Michael Ferguson got his telephone number and address book in a little wooden case that I've got there because I really liked him a lot. He was kind, he was understanding, and he was good. You know, you trusted him. And that, I think, is the most important thing when you have a director who you feel understands what you're trying to do and you understand what he wants you to do, and it's a kind of combination of the two of them. There are so many directors who direct without listening to the actor who might have quite a, you know, might know what he's talking about. Um, And I find that very sad. I did a couple of plays up in... uh, in Hampstead, was it? Uh, yeah, at the pub, the George in Hampstead Heath, and uh, and the director was dreadful. 
I mean, he wasn't a director. I mean, he should have, you know, I don't know where he got the job. Well, you know, that's the way. You have various very good ones. John Madden. Mm -hmm. I worked with John when he came out of out of Yale, not jail, Yale. <laughs> and uh, he was doing Mrs. Warren's Profession. And we did it twice. We were down in the village and then we did it up at, uh, um, at the Circle in the Square on uh, 50th Street with Uta Hagen playing the lead. Do you know Uta Hagen? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. And uh, a bunch of good people. Uh, and I played the, the vicar. And Madden was great because I, uh, I didn't want to play it. I thought it wasn't me. I wanted to, in fact, being having a big head, I decided I wanted to play a bigger part. <laughs> and there was a part which I thought was much better. And I was in New York visiting my mother, came back, phone rings, and uh, it was John saying, We want to offer you the part of the Reverend Samuel Gardner. That's what it was. And I said, I thought, Oh, my mother's over 90. She'd love to see me on stage in New York again, you know. And I said, yes. Anyway, so we went back, accepted the part. And John was so good in telling me the good bits, how to do it. Not actually how to act it, but what, what was the, how the character was, who he was, and how he behaved. And it was absolutely brilliant. It worked out so well that Uta was standing in the in the wings, constantly, saying, "I do, did a little thing there in the beginning of the thing. What's he doing now? What's he doing now? You know." <laughs> and it was great, and I enjoyed it. Everybody else enjoyed it. And Madden, well, he, you know, he won the Oscar for yeah, yeah, uh, and he was lovely and so nice. Yeah. You go to a guy, and you work with him. Or you don't even know him. He doesn't know you. You audition, right? And they say, "Okay, so, okay. so, I'm always worried about about the director. Like, I've done a bit of directing myself, you know, in summer stock and whatnot. You have to, and frequently, as you well know, an actor has to direct himself because the director ain't helpful. <laughs> you know, yeah, he's just not helpful. I don't know what he's doing. Oh, he moves you around, you know, if he can, and he gives you some kind of suggestion, which frequently, as you well know, you think is a lot of baloney, and you reject, and you want to do something totally different. Not totally different, but you've got more of an idea of the character you're playing than he does. Uh, so, that's, I think, is very important. Good directors. Oh, God, yes, and they're very few and far between, I think, anyway. There are not as many good directors as there should be. There are a lot of good actors. Well, loads of them. the good directors. Oh yeah, I think so. Anyway. So, well, you you mentioned that that was your return to the New York stage. So, um, perhaps tell tell the listeners who might not know of your background. Well, um, I went to um, when I came out of the army. Ooh, that ages me, doesn't it? Yeah, quite. Um. Uh, I had gone to university for a couple of years before that to um, 
Assumption College, which is part of the University of Western Ontario. And um, the government then decided that I could finish my studies and they would pay for it, or I could go somewhere else. Anyway, I decided I had done some, quite a bit of acting before, even at college, and uh, written a couple of radio plays and all the rest of it. <coughs> so I thought, and my mother was in New York, my sister was in New York, in other words, the family I had was in New York, I applied to the dramatic workshop of the New School for Social Research, which you don't know anything about, do yeah. you? It was run by a man called Erwin Piscator, who was a refugee from the Nazis, not because he was Jewish, because he was, his father was a, a Lutheran pastor, but because he hated the Nazis and Hitler. And I think he was a communist, in fact. And so he left and went to New York. He did a couple of Broadway shows, directed them. Uh, didn't wasn't very successful there, I said. He wasn't a Broadway director. He founded this school. And I'm just going to drop a few names. Like uh, Marlon Brando, Elaine Stritch, B. Arthur. In my particular uh, year, there was B. Arthur and uh, uh, Tony Curtis and Rod Steiger and Walter Matthau and uh, oh, a bunch of others, you know, which I kind of always remember. Most of them, quite a few, did quite well. Yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, some of the ones that didn't become stars are quite well as well, you know. So, uh, anyway, it was a, a terrific time. And we did plays, something called The March of Drama, which started off with uh, Lysistrata. We had Chekhov, we had Shakespeare, we had Bruckner, we had all sorts, of everybody. Lope de Vega. I played the Commandadore in Lope de Vega. Well, I loved it very much. Um, I mean... It was a fantastic education. You had we had two theatres, proper proper theatres, one on Forty Eighth Street, which was a small, so sort of two hundred three hundred seater. It's gone now. Now there's a, a restaurant called Mama Leone. <laughs> well, well, times change. And the other one was on Second Avenue, way down in Houston Street, Houston Street to you, um, or to everybody else, um, where the Jewish original Yiddish theatre was. But on the sixth floor of this building, there was another theatre, and it was a burlesque theatre, 600-seater, and we had that as well. And plus all the rooms in between, which were taken by various uh, um, various uh, unions, and I remember being taught by one in one of them in the Bagel Bakers Union. Huh which I thought was very funny. Hmm. And, the, and the people who taught were equally interesting. There was Stella Adler, her sister. They didn't talk, by the way. The Adlers never talked to each other. None of them. They're all feuds going on constantly, <laughs> right? So that was one lot. And uh, uh, who's the guy who founded the, uh, the uh, Method Theatre? Uh, Lee Strasberg. Yes, and Lee Strasberg taught directing in the beginning. Not when I yes when I was there for a bit, and then he left, um, and uh, well, various other people. One guy from the uh, from the Moscow Art Theatre, who then became a big shot in Israel with the Habima, and he said something to me on the stage which I shall always cherish. 
as an actor, when you go when you you got a scene, right? You come and say, it says, always remember, where do you come from? Where are you going? And what are you doing here? <laughs> I.e., get a character, you know what he's been doing, you know, and then no matter what the lines is, that that fills out the character, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And where are you going after that? Not that the audience will know where you're going after us, but you should. And, and do you have an opinion, having been there around that time, do you have an opinion on the method? Yes. It doesn't work for me. What more can I say? It, it's sort of like I can't get everything from, uh, from inside. In that sense, I have to. I, I, I think Olivia said that when he does a part, uh, when he gets the right shoes, he knows how to do it, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to hang on to something that maybe outside. You know, and I can't, and then I work into the character rather from inside out. I work outside in. That probably maybe explains it more. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, I've got nothing against the method. If that works for you, uh, fine. And so, how having uh, trained in uh, America, how, what what brought you to the UK to work? Ah, two things. <laughs> Number one, a breakup with a girlfriend, <laughs> which wasn't. Not it was going to end, and the good thing is, as a Canadian, I could come in in England and work here without anything. I didn't need a permit. I didn't need anything. And I said, I thought to myself, okay, never been to London, great place, I'm sure. I'll go over there, spend a couple of years, become a star, and go back. Yeah, Still. because oh yeah, the reason was I'd just done. Uh, what was the play? The Trial by Kafka. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Which was written by a couple of guys and it was very good. We finally got permission to do it. And I was doing it in the village and naturally I was brilliant, I thought. <coughs> and uh, and I thought, well, now where are the offers? Where are my Broadway offers? And they didn't turn up. All I did was it got an offer to tour a, uh, I think, uh, a tone poem in the someplace in, in, in the South. And I thought, well, if they don't want me, I'll come, I'll do something exciting. And I, want, I talked about the breakup with the relationship. So I came here. I thought I'd be here for two years, go back, great. And I loved it. I mean, I came here and it was wonderful. And it took me five minutes I had a job I went on tour and I thought this is great and I loved London and I thought the whole thing was just wonderful I loved the theatre here I liked the people I liked the other actors and I've obviously found somebody else again as usual and that was almost instrumental as well in staying and then you know you just keep on going and uh, I didn't go back to work until the mid-80s when I got this job that I was told you about earlier. Yeah. So I guess you were very useful for casting directors because there's nothing like a, an authentic... Well, there weren't many. There were a few. And, you know, this kind of little group that was always called upon to do things. 
you know, which is what I did. And uh, and you get gainful employment in things like the Saint and uh, the, yes. pris- the Prisoner. Yeah, uh, with Patrick McGowan. That's another one, by the way. The, the Prisoner is another. Uh, um, they got a, a society. Mm-hmm. You get things through your letterbox from. Prisoner well, fans. we had. I don't. I, well, I get the odd letter, but we had a uh, um, a gathering, a luncheon. Oh. And they're somewhere up in in W two, I think it was, and they even brought the old car. There was a little a lotus or something. Oh yes, that was fun. And can you uh, do you understand the following that that serial that series attracts? Because uh, it's quite a devoted. Yes, it's very devoted. To uh, oh, I think I understand. Yeah, absolutely, because it's so strange. And uh, the characters are defined, and it's so, it's so weird, having this one person being almost hunted whenever you know, trying to break out of something that isn't really a confinement. I found it very good. I liked it. And what about McGowan himself? Because he was quite a excellent. Yeah. Again, McGowan, I can understand all that. Uh, like Pertwee, when you're the st- the undisputed star of the show. You're in every one of them. You have a lot to do, a lot of work, a lot to think about, a lot of lines to learn. You're not going to go around being chummy with everybody who's in the cast. You can't. It's just not possible. Sure. You know, you can be very friendly, but you're not going to be buddy-buddies. You may occasionally find somebody whom you've known before. Yeah, but not, not on the set. doesn't really... You know, I did run with John Thaw as well. Uh, whatever that was. Oh, Kavanaugh. Oh, Kavanaugh QC, yes. I'm waiting for that one to come on. I've not, I've not seen it. I'm playing an old an old Southern git, you know, in the States. Yeah. There's one way he goes to the States. And again, you know, there's no real personal contact. And I'm not interested in observing or... getting to know what they do unless I, they like me and I like them it's a job I mean acting in that sense is a job the way you get really friendly is when you do a play because mm-hmm. you're a company you're, you're a company it's a totally different kettle of fish you know because you're in their company all the time I mean uh, South Pacific was wonderful I loved it um, what else Another couple of music- musicals. Um, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, which was fun. Great fun. I played two parts. In the movie, the same uh, Car- Charles Durning, who just died, yeah. they combined the two parts into one. And he was very good. He's a nice man. No, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, <clears throat> Anything Goes, I loved, because I love the music. You know... Yeah, great fun. And you, I mean, you know, you, you were in the Tudors as well, which is uh, Absolutely, you know, re- yeah. relatively recent. So you've kept you've kept pretty busy. Yeah, you've never wanted you've never wanted to give it up or relax. You, you enjoy- I, if I hadn't broken my hip in the bleeding gym about a year ago, a little more, I'd still be going for a job. I mean, I did a couple of commercials just before that. Very funny ones, actually. One of them. Uh, you know, now I've had no intention of giving it up. I don't see any reason why, as long as you can, 
if you can learn the lines, you can do the job, why should you give up? Absolutely. And not only that, but it does something for your psyche. It keeps you going. You know, instead of just sitting here like I'm doing now, thinking, what am I going to eat tomorrow? Oh yeah, Raoul is coming, and Raoul is going to go shopping now. I've got to give him a shopping list. You know, I mean, it's no life. I used to get into my little car, drive to the gym, do a workout or whatever I felt like doing, go and have lunch, meet people, go off, you know, have a life. Mm-hmm. Lucky for me, a lot of the people that I've met at the gym, apart from other friends, come to see me all the time. I mean, I just got a phone call from New York. A guy who comes to the gym, an American, comes to the gym and for lives in London for about five months or six months and he goes back to New York. Reading me an article he's been trying to write and asking for my advice, you know, and uh, it just goes on. And when they hear, we see each other, you know. And as I said, I've got loads of friends that come in and so I don't feel forgotten or, you know, totally isolated. But I wish I got back again into into real circulation. And I still have an agent mm-hmm. who phoned me up not so long ago saying, oh, you're still on your, you can't go, because I've got a part for you. You know, they come up. I mean, I don't know how old you'd think I am. I, I don't know. And I'm not going to tell you. Which is fair enough. Absolutely. No, I would like. I would love you to just tell me. Uh, yeah. And it's a, it's a be diffi- honest. It's a difficult one because of course it's difficult. Um, I mean, you have white hair in the Ambassadors of Death, and that was I say that as a grey-haired person myself. What was that? And that was the Doctor Who. Uh, Had grey hair. Saw. Yeah, yeah. It looks wonderful there. Um, <laughs> and that was forty years ago. Yeah. Uh, Forty. Two or three, two years, or three ago. years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, wait a minute now. You just show me that. Now, I didn't look. Look at this. I didn't. Your, oh, yeah, the yeah. Now, where's the grey hair? Tell me. Well, it's steel. Steel colours oh, then. Oh, I guess. okay. I'm used to watching On the it side. black and white as well, of course. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. But you're not going to tell me, so. But you want me to guess? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Are you, are you 80? Yeah. And, and you're <laughs> rising your hand up. But I guess the answer is what an actor friend of mine says when he goes in for castings. And they say, how old are you? And he says, how old do you want me to be? Exactly. It's exactly the same thing. I do exactly the same. What's the point? I, I, I remember once I went for an interview at the BBC. A fellow shall remain nameless. In fact, I've forgotten his name. And he didn't like me, that was sure, right in the beginning. You knew, sometimes you know, you yeah. got the connection, right? So I'm sitting there, and not that I wasn't right for the part, no. But he said, tell me, um, how old are you? And I said, uh, 53. Oh, he said, you know, the part is for a 51-year-old. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't have been more stupid. No, no. And that's exactly He's not around there anymore, that's for sure. That's yes. I mean, you know... Exactly. How old do you look? What can you play? Uh, yeah. End of story. Yeah. Well, um, 
I ask you, um, well, I've, I've, exceeded, I've exceeded my time, so... Um, if there's anything else you want to know, go uh, uh, Well, uh, well uh, maybe some highlights for, of, of work that you've done that maybe I haven't mentioned. Um, jobs that stick out, particularly in television and film. Uh, particularly in that. You know, my film career has been pretty boring. Um, small parts, nothing very exciting. I enjoyed being in Highlander. Mm-hmm. I've been in... I was in uh, in a very minor part in Guns of Navarone, in uh, From Russia with Love. Ah, uh, the last one I did, I think, was Christ, I've forgotten the title. And you're an American werewolf in London as well. Oh yeah, dream sequence, aren't you? Yeah, I love that. His dad. Yeah. Uh, oh, but, one brilliant line, right? Ah, I'll get it. Open the door. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and the monsters come in and kill me. You know, it's very funny. That was fun. Yeah, I like that. They've been, as, I've been in a lot of funny enough. A lot of movies become classics. Yeah, well, Doctor Who and James Bond. That's not absolutely that's not bad. Yeah, um, there's another one-liner. We were doing. Uh, uh, I was a helicopter pilot. It's when uh, when Seanery, uh, Connery is driving away in a truck with this girl in from Russia with love and they're escaping this helicopter who's trying to kill him right and we're in this in the studio on a they build a kind of the the, the cabin and they put it on a, a couple of planks and there are two guys in front the planks were on or are the the whatever the uh, was underneath and they had that on, on big springs and there were two guys moving it up and down and we pretending to be in the helicopter, you know. I I mean, it already makes you laugh, you know, you <laughs> think, what a load of codswallop. So, anyway, I'm the pilot and said, my big line was, straddle that truck and to, to bomb the which we do. And then uh, the truck blows up and they will escape, of course, you know. That was it. So, but you know, never mind. No, you're in it, yeah. and that's it. Yeah, and you're all going to. I'm always going to straddle that truck. <laughs> You'll always be there. Um, well, uh, I ask you to nominate charity so that the listeners can uh, can donate at their leisure. Well, I find that the the charity I like most of all is the Salvation Army. They don't have a big office. They don't advertise in a big way. I support them every year and I hope everybody else will too because I really do think that they deserve it. They've been around for a long time and they do deserve it because they do a good job. Apart from that, when I first came to New York, I was living in a Salvation Army hostel on 45th Street and it was great and they were lovely. So give to the Salvation Army. Too. And another great institution, which is the, what brought us together, was uh, uh, was Doctor Who, which is 50 years old this Absolutely. year. Absolutely. So I wondered if you had a message for the Doctor Who fans out of there in this 50th year. Oh, you must be getting old, unless you get, <laughs> unless you get reruns. <laughs> well, Gordon Stern, thank you very much for Keep your time. Keep on trucking. Thank you. Brilliant. Uh, thanks to Gordon. 
I stayed and chatted with him for another couple of hours, uh, but not with the recorder on, so those delights were just for me. But what a fascinating uh, fellow. Uh, there's also now a thread for these uh, these things, Toby Headopes Who's Round, on the Big Finish forums. Uh, but by listening, you are contractually obliged to say only nice things. Uh, Gordon's charity was the Salvation Army, uh, who you can donate to, and I hope you do, at www.salvationarmy.org.uk. My next victim, promisingly, has emailed me to say that she is, and I quote, fed up to the back teeth with Doctor Who, unquote, and that her 25 years at the BBC uh, she loved, and the only one that she hated was her year on Doctor Who, uh, and that she thought it was, and I quote again, amateur hour, uh, but that she'd be delighted and more than happy to talk to me. So that'll be fun, I think. Because this was quite a short podcast... I've decided to include another Pertwee anecdote from an interview that was grabbed at the last minute and was somewhat truncated, but it does knock another Pertwee story off the list. Listen up. That's pressing record. Right, I'm doing a bit of a clandestine one here. This wasn't planned, I've just leapt on somebody. Um, who's been involved in a number of Doctor Who, so I'm going to say to him, who are you and why am I talking to you about Doctor Who? Well, I'm the person that's been leapt on, and my name is Colin Mapson. I was effects uh, assistant, visual effects assistant on Doctor Who and designer on Doctor Who. Um, so, yeah, so uncredited as an assistant, I guess. So ha- tell us how far Nothing. back you go with Doctor Who. I go back to, I'm afraid, 1970 with Doctor Who. So quite a long way. So that was early John Pertwee, was it? Early John Pertwee, yeah. Oh. yeah. Paddy Kingsland's just giving me a cup of tea. Name dropping. Um, uh, <laughs> thank you, Paddy. You know how to do it. Might be leaping on him later. Um, yeah. uh, one of the most memorable stories of Doctor Who in the 70s, probably down to you, was the Green Death. Yes. The yeah. one with the maggots. Yes. Well, I, was to- I did a, an interview for a DVD for the Green Death recently, and I was informed then for the first time that the maggots were an iconic part of the Doctor Who legacy, which I hadn't realised. But um, looking at it, they are... Even in this day and age, I think, still fairly impressive. And so how did you make those? It's a long, <laughs> complicated process, and probably kind of... I'll, I'll skip through it. Basically, um, there's a, a type of air ducting you can get, which is a canvas with a, a coiled wire element in the centre of it, and it'll flex in every direction. So that was the basic for the shape of the body. That was the, the skeleton, as it were. And onto that, we had some cast, I think, weasel skulls, because we wanted the things not to look obviously just like maggots but like aggressive maggots so they had to have teeth they had to be aggressive and um, then a load of foam a load of elastic bands it was primitive Doctor Who technology and the final sheen surface on it was um, cling film again held with elastic bands and then we smeared Swarfiga on the top to give them the glisten and yet you traumatised a generation it's the one that everyone remembers yeah it, it apparently traumatised quite a few people <laughs> <laughs> had, had you been aware of that over the years or was that only revealed to you sort of when people started well, approaching you to talk about Doctor Who well, and things? I know Ron Oates was the effects designer on it and I'd done a few th- uh, props for various other programmes apart from Doctor Who and he approached me specifically to do these maggots and I just loved the idea of doing it particularly he described how he wanted them to look with a tapered mouth going to the jaws and the, and the blunt end that you get on maggots and I did give them a 
a very good shot and I, must, I, was impl- I was pleased with what resulted so I thought perhaps they were some of the better things that I'd made so I wasn't really that surprised and, and tell us about Ron because he was a name we see on the credits but he, he died relatively he died he was, he was a very very talented guy Ron um, and he did die yeah, re- relatively early I worked I think the last thing I worked with him on was Moonbase he did a thing called Moonbase. Moonbase three. Was Moonbase that, yeah. three. Yes, and I had to take over the effects on it because he he was virtually starting to crack up then. And he left the BBC and died shortly afterwards, which was a, a great great shame because he, he was a good he was a great talent in my opinion. And uh, those heady days of of the BBC visual effects department. I mean, were you making stuff up as you went along? Yeah, I, I love the whole concept of it because um, I was talking earlier to someone about the BBC and. Um, there wasn't the constrictions that you had today with budgets, mainly because it was money circulating within the entire corporation. It never really left the corporation. Everything you wanted was there, like costume, set design, scenic design, ourselves. So it was sort of Mickey Mouse money going around, which gave you an open hand to do an awful lot of things. And we just used it to the full, really. It was, um, it was great. It was really good. And I remember I spoke to Jack Kine and Bernard Wilkie years ago, and when they started the department, they said, you know, they'd, they'd nip around to sort of esoteric shops in London and pick up various different bits and bobs yeah 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 you you you, you just go anywhere it, i was based at um, white city and of course at the bottom of white city you had shepherd's bush market which was full of caribbean influence asian influence everything was down there plus some quite good craft shops and we were always down there buying bits and pieces it was it was and i, I worked with a guy called richard conway years later who went on to do effects on feature films outside and we did one particular Doctor Who, and I can't remember which one it was. I mean, he was trying to design a spaceship, and we were co-designing on it. And he was taking care of the filming, and I was going to do the studios. And he said to me, I've got the, I've got the answer, motorbike fairings. And I thought, this guy's mad. What do you mean, motorbike fairings? And he, he pulled in a motorbike magazine with a, a very stylistic motorbike fairing of a huge, I think it was Italian motorbike. And the short story was he bought one of these fairings we took a mould of it and then he cast two fairings out of it joined them together in the middle and we had this most fantastic looking Doctor Who spaceship it was huge but the shape was just fantastic and he just looked at something in the magazine and thought that's the way we'll go and then time and stuff got in the way but we got a story and thanks to Colin who did that very much on the fly it's the nature of this broadcast Oh, actually, it's two stories to knock off, because as well as The Green Death, that one, that was a Tom Baker story that Colin did with Richard Conway, was The Invasion of Time. So that hubcap spaceship has knocked off that. It means I don't have to go to France to try and find Derek Deadman, which actually I'd quite like to do. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, Prisoners of Fate. This is Maxis Wilder. Please identify. My name is Adric Serenus Trarkin. When my mother was a young woman, she travelled in a machine called the TARDIS. A time machine. A time machine? I know it's hard to believe, but when I was a boy, she used to tell me stories about the adventures she had when she travelled with the Doctor. Delighted to meet you. I'm the Doctor. This is Tegan Tallow and Nissa. I remember her telling me about the dangers of altering history, that once something has happened, it can't, it mustn't be changed. By becoming part of the consequences of an event, we can no longer influence that event. 
Not without creating a paradox. 25 years ago, on a mission to the planet Helheim, my mother disappeared. Hello. I, I hope you don't mind us dropping in on you like this. Not at all. You're most welcome. You don't seem very surprised to see us. Nisa. Oh, my worship. It's her. It's her. We had advance notice of your arrival. You did? There, on the screen. She's... My mother. It was foretold. How terribly interesting. Foretold by who, exactly? There's something about this place. Something evil. Oh, no, it, it can't be. That's not possible. You're saying that you've got a machine that lets you see into the future? You don't realise what you're doing, the forces you're unleashing. I thought I could trust you, Doctor. But it appears I was wrong. Well, the time differential is shorted out. There will be an explosion large enough to destroy us, the TARDIS, this planet... And most of the galaxy. Doctor. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.